And I think that that's short-sighted because we're, we could end up in a situation where we are not living sustainably and then our population, God forbid, would have a dramatic decline, which is something that we could have prevented had we been more wise. And, and there's an example of this in, in the Bible of Joseph. The Bible, the book, end of the book of Genesis says that Joseph had and his wife, Osnat, had two children. And the rabbis understand that in comparison to his father, who had at least 13 children, that Joseph actually practiced family planning ahead of the famine that he saw coming in Egypt. And therefore, according to Jewish law, if there's a famine coming, it's actually forbidden for a man to engage in marital relations with his wife. So based on that, and based on the predictions of scientists in terms of the ecological challenges that we're in, the ecological crisis that we're in, to my mind, it's a no-brainer that we need to have a religious conversation about population. Because if we don't, it's like, assuming that God will just take care of us no matter what we do. But there's a teaching that God wants us to have responsibility and to act with maturity and foresight in order to enable life to continue and for it to be thriving. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I thought this conversation would be short, that we'd mostly talk about his experiences in the park. And we do talk about that experience. But we also got into territory that I'd wanted to talk to a religious scholar about. I would not have expected being recorded would make us, or I would have expected it would make us more tentative, but I found the opposite. I didn't keep track, but several times I said, Feel free not to answer. If you don't want to, that's fine. But instead, he answered more, sharing what he thought about and researched in depth well beforehand. We cover things like Joseph, Isaac, the Archbishop of Burundi, population, contraception, consumption, and more topics that I think a lot of people consider hot-button topics. And we cover these things both in principle, the theory, I guess, but also our personal lives, our personal decisions to consume more, not to consume more, things like that. We also cover his personal experience in the woods near his home, his family, his work, and how they all interplayed. I won't resist now commenting about the number one reason people give about not being able to act. Josh, they say, you don't have kids. You don't understand how it's impossible to do whatever. Well, take it up with yet another family man who, at least as I heard it, found nature bringing his family closer. Here's Jonathan. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Rabbi Jonathan Neriel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to have you back. And I'm really curious to hear because you took on a challenge or you took on a commitment that, as I remember, is, I think it's to be family oriented. I think it's to be community oriented, but I'm not really sure. And different people, it turns out in different ways. Actually, can you remind us what was the, both what was, what motivated you and what was the motivation driving it? And what, what did you do? Well, the motivation was for me to spend more time in nature and, uh, what I did was I went every day on a walk in the local park in nature, in a in a forest with trees, in a in a place where there's a little pond and a small waterfall, uh, which is just about a five minute walk from my house. But uh, I I made the commitment to do that, and I did it almost every day. You're making me want to turn this off and go outside right now. It sounds really great. And yeah, here it's about freezing right now. What's the temperature there? Well, here it's about uh, 60 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. Okay, so fairly comfortable, although not not like uh, 
shorts and t-shirt weather. Yeah, but it's definitely warm enough to go outside. And how did it go? What what happened? Well, you know, I, I went for about an hour each time and it opened me up to contemplation. I saw wildlife that I haven't seen before. Uh, you know, one of the nice things about uh, the silver lining of the pandemic is that some animals that we didn't used to see in the city are are now more present. So I today, actually, on my walk today, I saw a bird that with these incredible blue feathers that I, I'd never seen before. I also, uh, yesterday, I saw a bunny rabbit that seemed to be out, just out there on the park on its own, maybe to escape from someone's house. I also one time saw a jackal. Wow. Here in Jerusalem. So uh, just, you know, opening my eyes to the, the nature that exists. And, you know, some of the days that I went, it had rained, uh, you know, half an hour before I went. And so to see the park in a, you know, with a lot of water on it and, you know, in a win- and, and to feel the winter and to see nature from that perspective and really to, to observe the seasons is something I also came to appreciate. I guess this is, you're going to have to speculate for this, but do you think those things were there and you didn't notice them? Or do you think that there's more there? Or maybe a little both? Yeah, I think it, they're, they're, they're there and I just didn't notice them. You know, I, I spend a fair amount of time each day in front of a screen and the life in the forest exists whether or not I go to see it. It's sort of like the saying, if a tree falls in a forest but no one hears it, does it fall? Well, I think the answer is yes, it does fall and the trees exist and, and the, the wildlife exists, whether or not we go out to, to observe it. Yeah, I feel like you've you got birds and bunny rabbits to see, and instead you're looking at me on a screen. <laughs> oh, uh, you mentioned the weather. Did you ever go out in the rain, or did, it, did the weather make it difficult at any times? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I went out one time when I thought it wasn't going to be raining, but then it started raining, and I didn't bring an umbrella, but I did have my rain jacket on, so I was walking in the rain, and that's also a Singing in the rain. It's a beautiful experience. Yeah. And, you know, also to see the, the water flowing, there's these little streams that, you know, form on the hillside uh, when it rains here. And the water, I'm actually right on a watershed line. So where my apartment is, the water flows to the Mediterranean Sea uh, through the Sorek stream. But if, if I walk about 100 feet to the east, then I reach the, the point in the hill where the watershed line changes and the water that falls from there will descend to the Dead Sea. And so that, that water goes onto the Dead Sea watershed. About a third of Jerusalem's water uh, goes into the Dead Sea watershed. And, and it's pretty amazing because the next watershed line is, to the, is the Persian Gulf watershed once you get into, into Jordan and Iraq. Uh, so, you know, just to, to also to be aware of the watershed that I live in and, and to see the water flowing, where it flows that I also saw a, a raven and, and a smaller bird bathing in the water. Uh, you know, it's just really, really amazing to see. Now, did you look up the watershed stuff now, or did you know that already? Not many, I don't know my, well, I'm on an island in Manhattan, but is that something you knew before, or how did you happen to know that? It is. I actually lead uh, faith-based ecological tours here in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and I have this map that shows the, the different watersheds. And so I, I didn't know that beforehand. But but in New York City, there's also different watersheds because some of the water will flow to the East River in Manhattan and some of it will flow to the Hudson. Yeah, I, basically, I remember crossing the um, the Continental Divide when I was a kid, you know, my dad taking us across the country. And it's like one side goes to the Pacific, one side goes to the Atlantic. But I know that there's lots of water. I mean, I guess that would 
there's lots of watersheds. Yeah, and it's actually an, it's an ecological idea to be connected to the watershed that one lives in because a lot of people don't know where their water comes from. And some of it, you know, in my case, the water is actually desalinated in the Mediterranean Sea and then piped in huge pipes to Jerusalem. And my, my wife is from uh, northern New Jersey, and, and there in a town called Verona, they get the water from the wells. They, they dig, you know, in, into the underground aquifer, and, they, and their drinking water comes from the wells. You also mentioned the tourists, and I, it takes me back to, uh, you've written the Eco Bible. And I can't imagine, I have to imagine that as this was happening, you were experiencing, you're connecting what you're seeing, what you're listening to, what you're hearing with what you, with what you work on and the people you work with. Did, was, did this affect your, your work, your communities? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been doing over the past couple of months is I've been taking sections from Eco Bible and I've been publishing them as blog posts on the Times of Israel, which is an online news source. And I found that walking in nature is a great time for to stimulate my brain. Uh, some of the more creative insights that I've had over the past couple of months have come not when I'm sitting in front of my screen after, you know, having looked at 50 emails, but rather when I'm out in the forest and my mind is, you know, my body is moving, my, my mind is intrigued by what I'm seeing. And all of a sudden an insight comes that relates to something that I'm, I'm working on. Um, so that's another, you know, benefit of, of, of going into nature. Has this commitment led to you writing differently? Has our conversation filtered its way in, in some way into the Times of Israel? I think it has. Uh, and actually, one of the blog posts that I, I may write in the coming weeks relates to going into nature. Because I think that at a deeper level, the ecological crisis partly has to do with our disconnect from nature. That we, we, we're, Most people in the world now live in cities. Most people in the world are spending more and more time in front of screens. And Therefore, what happens to nature is of less consequence to us because, well, who really cares what happens in the Amazon rainforest as long as the Amazon package reaches me with what I ordered? So I think when we go more into nature, then we come to appreciate nature, nature more and care for it. Yeah. You know, something I, I ask people is, and, and people listening to us right now, I ask them this, look around and is there anything living that you can see? I mean, I happen to have some plants on my windowsill, but other than that, I can't actually, I have to, if I go to the window and look out, I can see some trees down on the street and there's a little park. If I really look, if I like really get my face up by the window, most people, there's nothing living within sight. Yeah. So that's, you know, and that, so that's part of the power of going into the forest is that there's, you're surrounded by life or, you know, it says in, in the book of Genesis, since you mentioned about Eco Bible, that God planted God placed the human being in the garden of Eden to serve it and conserve it. That The natural place where God put people was in a garden, in a forest. That's, you know, that's what the creator intended us to be surrounded by. God didn't put us in a parking lot or in a, you know, warehouse with servers uh, surrounded by blinking lights. <laughs> yeah. I laughed at that because you said it in a kind of, I think you said it in a kind of funny way, but it's, it's, it's not funny. You know, speaking of, of going back to the original language, I only know it in English. The phrase be fruitful and multiply. I've been interpreting that. Is it a fair interpretation based on the original, if you know, uh, to say be fruitful, live a sweet life and multiply, multiply happiness? 
Is that a fair way of reading that? Is that, I mean, I guess this is something that like thousands of years people talk about different interpretations. Yeah, it's an interesting interpretation. I've never, I've never read such an interpretation in the rabbinic commentaries that I'm familiar with, but a lot of the mystical traditions interpret it. I mean, first of all, the, the rabbinic commentaries interpret it usually literally. That means have children, and you know, to have according to Jewish law, to have one boy and one girl. That's the fulfillment of be fruitful and multiply. That there's going to be offspring after you. But uh, your interpretation is also, you know, it's a... I made it up. <laughs> it's, a, it's nice. I mean, literally would mean plant fruit trees and like do your multiplication tables. I would think that would be like very literally. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's seven times seven is 49. That's, that's multiplying. Mm-hmm. Right. Although it's interesting because before God says that to people in the first chapter of Genesis, God says that to the fish, that the fish should be abundant. So... But it's interesting what you're saying that that the the word the word be fruitful both in Hebrew and in English is relating to fruit which we understand comes from trees and so and and you know be have fruit like the fruit of a tree it's it's also interesting because right now is a, this week there's the Jewish holiday of Tubishvat which celebrates the new year of the trees there are four year, new years in in the Jewish calendar and one of those new years is a new year for the trees and so there's a custom to eat a lot of fruits on this Jewish holiday of Tu Bishvat as a way of celebrating the, the birthday of the trees. I didn't think of interpreting be fruitful as lots of trees. And, and I would add vines and um, bushes and other places where fruit. I mean, I think of what comes from vines, like uh, what do you call them? Water, watermelons and melons and grapes. Grapes. Pumpkins. Yeah. And then bushes will get a lot of berries come from like small, small little shrubbery looking things. And the more we have of those, that's being, that would seem to be ve- being very fruitful. And cutting them down would be the opposite. Right. So, so in, in the end of the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, there's a teaching, don't cut down fruit trees in war. And, and that teaching is understood to mean that because the trees produce fruit and we depend on fruit and trees for our survival, we shouldn't destroy fruit trees in war, as some armies have done. So there is an appreciation of the importance of fruit trees. It's just that in, in, that, in that verse, in, uh, be fruitful and multiply, it's, it's really referring to people of, of having offspring. So I don't want to get too far. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to get into commentary and things, but I'm going to go back to your experience. You talked about what you did and what you saw and... I'm curious about the emotional experience. What was the the journey from starting from when you said what you were going to do to preparing to doing it to talking now? So, I mean, the the emotional experience. I I feel uh, happy when I go into the forest. I feel grateful for the the opportunity. It's, it's amazing because I my sense of time actually changes. I don't. The hour goes pretty quickly. I, I'm not even aware that it's, you know, by the time I, I get home and it's been around an hour, it's, uh, it's, it's a sign that I, I really enjoyed myself. Um, and there's, when I, when I go start going for the walk into the forest, there's a certain lightness, uh, you know, especially now with the winter and the, there've been some storms. So the, the air is cleaner. Israel's also in a semi-lockdown now. So there's less traffic on the roads. So the city's quieter and there's less air pollution, so it's an opening experience for me to to go to go out there 
Um, and, and another thing I've done is I've sat on the, on the ground, which is another novel thing to, to sit on the earth. You know, we talk about looking at screens, but it's also most of the day I'm not, I'm not touching the earth. And so to, to lie on the ground for a few minutes and to put my body on the earth, it's this idea called earthing of, of sort of reconnecting my electromagnetic energy to that of the earth. Um, that's also something, you know, it's like a, a full body, a holistic experience. Is it what you expected? Before you did it, did you expect this or was it more or less different or the same? I mean, I, I've known my whole life about the importance of going into nature. Although, as I mentioned in our previous session, in my first, when I was a kid, I grew up on an acre of land with an organic garden that I gardened with my mother. And we had fruit trees and, and other trees. We had an old, there was an old growth oak tree on the land we lived on. So when I was a kid and th- through the end of high school, living closer to nature was just something that, that, w- that came naturally. It was part of my existence. I now live in a city and I'm blessed to live in, in the holy city of Jerusalem, but that makes going into nature more of an effort. I have to choose to go into nature or else the default is just that I'm indoors. Yeah, you're making me think of a conversation I had recently. Most people, when I ask them about what the environment means to them, they, most stories that people come up with, there's something from their childhood and something about what you said, like, like that. But of course, it's unique for everybody. And for one of the first times, maybe the first time, I was talking to someone who just had no experience of nature, had not any experience, had been in the city. I mean, I had one guy who lives near me and he grew up in Brooklyn and his experience of nature was soccer fields in Brooklyn. The only places where there was like a green oasis. So he had that. This other person I was talking to, and it wasn't on the podcast, it was just a friend. And he had nothing, there was no sense of loss for him of what was once available. It's hard for me to process. I guess we know that we, we adjust, you know, people from a generation before us would look at the amount of nature that we grew up in. I think we're roughly the same age. They would say that we grew up in, in lacking nature. And they themselves probably, their grandparents would have said that they were growing up with lack of nature. I wonder if there's like a cutoff where if people just have nothing, but I guess they'll just, they'll have a different idea. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it's, it, I think you're pointing to something really important that a lot of people in the world today are growing up with less and less connection to nature. And even when they do connect to nature, it might just be a small city park. You know, New York City, where you live, is a metropolitan area of about 23 million people. If you include northern New Jersey, which is, you know, from a satellite, it, a satellite makes no distinction be- between the state line of New York and New Jersey and, and then also, you know, the tri-state area. And, and so in that urban area of 23 million people, it's possible to get lost in the urban jungle and to have little contact with nature. And and that's true in many mega cities in the world today. There's a city in China that has 46 million people, Guangzhou, which is also now merged with two other cities. And, And Tokyo has 36 million people. So there are, you know, of the close to 8 billion people in the world now, over 4 billion live in cities. And I'm privileged that I can take an hour during my day to go into nature. I, I'm, I have that privilege because I direct my own organization. And so I, I set my own work hours and I, um, you know, often working in the evenings. But for someone who is, you know, doing whatever type of job they're doing, a lot of people don't have that option. And then by the nighttime, it may not be safe to go to a park. So 
It's a really, it's a, it's a deep question about how do we prioritize spending some time in nature, at least a few days a week. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I don't want to get into something that's difficult for some people to talk about, and it's difficult for me to talk about, but population is a big issue. Actually, another thing I've been thinking of, and feel free not to go there if you don't want, but there's a, a, a statement somewhere that says, um, you shall have descendants as many as uh, grains of sand in the beach or stars in the sky. And I thought about it, and it seems to me clear that it wasn't supposed to be all at once. Like if you turned all the grains of sand into people, there's not enough space for all of them at once. And if we want to have that lasting, if we want to reach that number, we can't let the population crash all of a sudden. I mean, it seems like it's not to say grow without bound the total number of people on the planet at any one time. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I, it's funny because today I actually published a, a blog post on this topic of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth until when. That's what it's titled. And, you know, when my grandfather was born in 1898, there were many fewer people in the world than there are today. And that would be about one and a half billion, I think. One and a half billion. That's right. And when my father, when he was born, which was in 1940, and my father was actually born in Brooklyn, there were approximately 2.5 billion people. And then when I was born... There were 4.5 billion people. I was born in 1980. When my son was born in 2010, there were 7 billion people. And when my son is as old as I am now, there will likely be 9 billion people. And when my son is as old as his grandfather is now, there will likely be 11 billion people. So essentially, we're going from 1.5 billion to 11 billion in the course of 200 years. And I, you know, people, many religious people in the world interpret the verse in in Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Literally that, that there are no bounds to that statement of God to the first person. Uh, and it applies whether or not there are eight or 10 or 20 or 50 billion people on the planet but one of my teachers, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, said, God wants spiritual fruits, not religious nuts. That we have to, you know, if, if we only interpret the Bible literally without any regard to the current reality we're living in, then it, it doesn't make sense. And that's where sustainability comes in. Because, you know, I had an interesting meeting with an archbishop, uh, the former archbishop of Burundi, uh, the Anglican archbishop. And Burundi is a country of 11.5 million people. It has a high birth rate, low rates of family planning or contraception, frequent uh, war and political instability, very uh, high rate of malnourishment. There's not enough food for people to eat. 
And I said to the archbishop, what do you think about the, the, the statement in Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? And he said, well, the land is full and, and, and I don't tell my people to, to do that. Um, and it's interesting because in the second chapter of Genesis, in, 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 in the second book of the, of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the book of Exodus, God says that the Israelites were fruitful and multiply and multiply greatly. And there are actually seven uh, words that describe how, how quickly they multiplied and, and filled the earth. So according to the scientists who studied ancient Egypt, the number of people living in ancient Egypt at that time, when the, when the Bible describes that the land was filled, was uh, about two to three million people. And so therefore, and the number of Israelites among them was about one million people. So the Bible itself calls the land of Egypt full with one million people, yet today Egypt has a hundred million people. And, and each year Egypt is adding an, another million people. So I think it's, it's high time for clergy to engage with this question of how do we understand be fruitful and multiply in our times when we're facing major sustainability challenges with the current population and is it wise and is it a spiritually aware thing to do to add another 3 billion people in the coming generations? And also, so if we're not to do that, right now it seems like there's a lot of government intervention to promote growth rate, their birth rate. And, but people say if we, if we apply the same pressure the opposite direction, then people will lose their cool and they say that's a terrible thing. But what if it were? I mean, what? And again, feel free to not answer this. But what if what if governments and religious organizations promoted lower birth rates? I mean, it seems like people choose that anyway. I guess there are government programs and family planning uh, throughout the world. From an eco Bible perspective, what do people think about promoting lower lowering the birth rate to below replacement level? I mean, it, I'm coming from a place where it seems to me. When I research what the Earth can sustain without using fossil fuels sustainably, it's significantly below 7 billion. So if we want to get to 7 billion, well, obviously we don't have to kill anyone. People die. We, you know, that happens. I hope, not, I hope I'm not bursting into bubbles. So if we lower the birth rate, we'll just naturally go back to a lower level, which seems like something that could benefit a lot of people, benefit everyone. I don't know. What is, how does that sound from your standpoint to promote a lower birth rate? Is that a scary thing or is that a welcome thing? No, I, I think it's a welcome thing. And I, I think it's, it's a needed thing because as you said earlier, we want to avoid a situation where we're living unsustainably and there's a, a population die off uh, or where we get into situations where the land can't support the people living on it or where people start fighting over resources and that leads to war. You know, one example of that is Syria. The most extreme drought in 900 years took place in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, including Syria, between 2006 and 2010. And hundreds of thousands of Syrian farmers, because of this drought that was exacerbated by climate change, moved from their farms to the cities. And these cities had already been destabilized by the Iraq Civil War and refugees coming from that conflict. And, and this is one trigger that led to the Syrian civil war, which was actually a regional war involving many countries, including Russia and the United States and, and Israel and um, Turkey so and Lebanon. So, and, and then it led to several million refugees. I think about 7 million refugees, including millions that, that moved to Europe and some to North America and then destabilized 
um, those countries were, which led to anti-immigrant political parties, far-right political parties being ascendant. So with the current population, we're already seeing mass migration of refugees, many of them climate refugees, including from Central America. There's actually a caravan of refugees that's now moving. It's going to uh, be interesting to see how the, the Biden administration responds to this. Um, because the, the land in Central America and Honduras and Guatemala and Nicaragua has become a lot less fertile because of drought, because of climate change. So to say that we just need to keep having big families because it says in the first chapter of Genesis, be fruitful and multiplied and multiplied, that seems to me to be short-sighted. It says in uh, the, the Jewish teachings, who is the wise person? The person who sees the long-term effect of their actions. And to increase the human population at this point by several more billion people from our current 8 billion to 11 billion, when we're already having such a difficult time feeding the current population, living sustainably on the land, to me, that seems to be a a misunderstanding of, of what God really wants from us. The, God desires life. God is seeking that we uh, live here on this amazing earth in, so that it's a thriving and spiritually aware and dynamic and planet full of life, full of the biodiversity of life. The New York Times just had an article about the last two white rhinos. So if, if our current population, is, you know, if you look at a graph, the human population is going up exponentially and the, the mass of humans and our stuff is going up exponentially and the animal population uh, especially if you exclude factory farmed animals, like the 24 billion chickens, and the, there's a total 80 billion factory farmed animals, but the animal population and, the, and especially the, the diversity of animal species is going way down. So I, God, God doesn't want this. God created every species on this planet for it to exist. And God doesn't want us extincting species just so that we can have more and more people. Is it hard for you to take this to say these things? Because I imagine some people would, I mean, it seems for a politician in the United States to say things like that, that person's probably not going to get elected. And I'm, I'm curious how you feel. To me, this is like what you said. It's like, yes, this makes total sense. How does it feel saying it? Have you said it before? I presume you have. I have said it before. And as I said, I just published an article on, on the Times of Israel today saying part of what I just said. Uh, and, I, and I've also recorded videos about this. And I, I even said something similar at the UN climate change conference in Marrakesh, Morocco, four years ago. Look, I, I'm not a politician, so I feel comfortable saying this. I also just feel like I'm being honest about, about these things. You know, one of, the, one of the main issues for a lot of religious people today is being pro-life, which means being anti-abortion and anti-contraception. But the, the question that I would put out there is, we need to be pro, how, do, how can we be pro-life so that every, every soul that comes into this world has a great chance of, of thriving and succeeding from day one until they're 100 years old? You know, thinking until 2120, 100 years from now. And, and to be pro-life, it isn't just about saying that every, you know, that, that, that we can have as many children as we can because because we, you know, shouldn't prevent, we shouldn't plan our families and we shouldn't do anything to control human population. I think that that's short-sighted because we're, we could end up in a situation where 
we are not living sustainably. And then our population, God forbid, would have a dramatic decline, which is something that we could have prevented had we been more wise. And, and there's an example of this in, in the Bible of Joseph. The Bible, the book, end of the book of Genesis says that Joseph had, and his wife, Osnat, had two children. And the rabbis understand that in, in comparison to his father, who had at least 13 children, uh, that Joseph actually practiced family planning ahead of the famine that he saw coming in Egypt. And therefore, according to Jewish law, if, if there's a famine coming, it's actually forbidden for a man to engage in marital relations with his wife. So take, based on that, based, and based on the predictions of scientists in terms of the ecological challenges that we're in, the ecological crisis that we're in, to my mind, it's a no-brainer that we need to have a religious conversation about population. Because if we don't, it's like assuming that God will just take care of us no matter what we do. But, but there's a teaching uh, that, that God wants us to have responsibility and to act with maturity and foresight uh, in order to enable life to continue and, and for it to be thriving. I thought you might also mention uh, somewhere around that time that there was the, the predictions of seven years of plenty followed by seven lean years. And so they instituted government regulation to prepare over those seven years, the first seven years to prepare for the next seven years. I mean, do I remember that right? That, I mean, it's the government said, we're going to, we're going to handle things. We will help prepare effectively taxing people for a while extra in order to return those taxes later. That's right. Joseph did orchestrate, you know, with Pharaoh's permission, a, an amazing effort to store the grain of Egypt during the seven years of abundance so that during the seven years of famine, the people of Egypt didn't starve and, and, and that Egypt actually was able to be a breadbasket for neighboring Canaan and, and other countries. You know, the question you're raising about government intervention is, to my mind, I mean, this is part of the reason why I work on the intersection between religion and ecology, is that I think a lot of people are, are very resistant to uh, government saying how many children you can have. Um, and, you know, for example, with the, the one-child policy in China, which no longer exists, and China's population is now at 1.5 billion people and growing, although India is likely going to overtake it in the coming decades. And so what I prefer is, is for clergy to engage with these issues, because currently clergy are a source that's promoting large families. And that's why most of the population growth in the world today is among religious people. If, you know, if you look at Europe... Um, and secular Americans, it's below the replacement rate. The, you know, the fertility rate is, is below 2.1. But if you look at the global South, which is much more religious than Europe and North America, you'll see that, that a lot of the population growth is occurring in re religious communities. And part of it has to do with, with the stance of religion that essentially says, have as many children as possible. And that's part of what I'm challenging. And, and, but I'm challenging it within religion. I'm saying, look at the sources, look at Joseph. Um, also Isaac and his wife, Rebecca had two children. And there's many Jewish sources that talk about, uh, and, and as I said, according to Jewish law, the fulfillment of the Bible commandment to to be fruitful and multiply is having a boy and a girl, two children. I'm wondering, I mean, you mentioned talking to, I think, our, I think you said it was a bishop, an archbishop. And I recently saw I'm Greta and Greta met with the Pope. And I was like, oh, what an opportunity to talk to the guy who a couple words from him, for him to interpret, he's got 
other things that he's interpreting. But I mean, for him to interpret things as you do could make a major, I mean, if one person in the world could say a few words slightly differently or say a lot of what you just said, it feels like he's maybe the most important person. Do you know if, any, if this stuff is filtering? He must be, it must be reaching his ears. It's interesting because five years ago, Pope Francis published an encyclical, which is like a book called Laudato Si on care for our common home. And it's a very powerful document, which, which I've read. And it talks about a lot of, you know, critiquing the, the technocratic industrial paradigm that is dominant today. And it talks about the importance of protecting biodiversity and of, you know, appreciating nature. It talks about addressing climate change. But there's two topics it doesn't delve into. One, it doesn't talk about plant-based diets or, or reducing our meat consumption. And it also, it only has one paragraph on population. Uh, and that paragraph is actually was used in a prior draft of the encyclical. It was a whole chapter. Um, but it, that paragraph says that population doesn't have anything to do with environmental sustainability. And I can, you know, I, I, I coming, coming from an Orthodox Jewish background here, I can appreciate why he says that, but I do think that population does have a lot to do with sustainability. There's a, a study called Drawdown, which lists the top hundred things we can do to curb climate change. And, and a number of those items at the top of the list relate to population in terms of, of female education, because increased female education means that, that, that women tend to have fewer children and a number of other items. So, and, be, and the reason why the, the single biggest ecological decision a person makes in their life is how many children to have is because every child is its, is its own person and is its own, will then come to consume however much they consume. But living in consumer society, that will probably be a lot. And so therefore, I do think that the population needs to be part of the conversation. Uh, and I'm trying to do what I can to, to elevate this as, as a topic uh, within religious circles. Yeah, let me know if I can help. It, 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 seems, it seems very commonsensical what you said to me, but I know a lot of people look at the world differently and come to different conclusions. You also mentioned consumption. I mean, this is something that in our emails, we've talked about my dad. He says, Josh, you only have one thing to concern yourself about. The environment is all, all that matters to you. But other people have to balance things. He says, for example, I, I love my family and I want to see my grandchildren and they're an ocean away, multiple oceans away. Now I say, if you say I only care about one thing, then you, are you saying that I don't love my nephews? Because that's his grandchildren, my nephews. I'm not going there because I read the, the predictions seem very clear of what, what happens when, you know, it's not rainbows coming out the back of the jet, it's jet fuel. And I've seen the land where the, the fertile crescent doesn't look very fertile when, where the oil's being drilled. So consumption is another big thing is, um, that we even talked about. Is it something you also talk about? Yeah, definitely. I, I, to be honest, I talk about consumption a lot more than I talk about population uh, and even more than I talk about going into nature, although I've been reflecting on, you know, what, what are the most important things to talk about? And it's interesting because with these blog posts that I write, I can see the number of people that share them each time. And the most popular ones that I do are about plastic and, and disposables, uh, far more than the posts on other ecological topics. And so, as I mentioned in this recent post, it's not just about there being 
you know, eight or 10 billion people on the planet. It's that we now have uh, a billion cars and we're, and we're going to double that in, in the next decade to 2 billion cars. It's that we, we have, you know, tens of billions of cell phones and laptops and, and personal computers. It's that, there, as I said, there are 80 billion factory farmed animals. The, the human consumption is, is a multiplier of our ecological impact. And there's a famous ecological equation uh, that was made many decades ago, impact, ecological impact equals population times consumption times technology. So how much we consume has a big impact ecologically. And, and it's definitely, you know, something to think about. I, I appreciate with you, Joshua, that, you know, we have a similar worldview in terms of ecological awareness um, and that's a really hard thing for people is to cut out plane travel. I mean, I'm, I appreciate that I haven't gone on a plane in 15 months. At the same time, it's, you know, not a simple thing. Um, but, but with a pandemic, it definitely has me reconsidering under what conditions I would be willing to fly. You know, it would, it would have to be, you know, something very significant. Um, I'm not just going to get back on a plane, uh, you know, if someone just sends me an email and says, you know, We'd like to invite you to this conference. It's, I'll say, oh, I'd be happy to participate via Zoom. Yeah, it's pretty tough. I think there's material growth and there's personal growth. And they, I think people, I think if you don't really think about it, the average American would think those go together. If you want to live a better life, you have to have more stuff. You have to buy more things. Or alternatively, buying things will make you happy. They won't say it like that, but they behave like that. <laughs> and yeah, I haven't completely broken that, but I've certainly broken that a lot in I found that, yeah, certainly getting, there's a lot of things that I've gotten rid of that have made me, well, I tend to think of getting rid of something brings freedom. That's been, and, and that, that, that generally improves my life. So I have a few, you know, I have my pressure cooker, I have a bicycle, but I've, this wall behind me used to be all books, but I got rid of a bunch of them. And then I realized, yeah, I'm going to tell you the story. I have this whole wall full of books and some, you know, I thought people come over and be like, oh, Josh is so well read. And, but some of the books I never read or didn't really need. So I got rid of a few. When I got rid of a few of them, there were some on the border. Like, should I get rid of this or not? And I erred on keeping it. But after I got rid of the ones that I got rid of, I looked at the ones that were on the border and realized, you know, compared to the ones I got rid of, these are worth keeping. But now that these are the, the laggards, I don't really need these either. So I went through a second round and a third round. And eventually other books went away, like just one by one or small group by small group. And I mean, I happen to have a library right across the street from me. That's where the park is that I mentioned before. But that has just led to many, many other things in life of getting rid of unnecessary things and not buying as much clothes as I used to and getting by with less. And, but the flip side is having more freedom. I think it's more of, I mean, when you were talking about seeing the birds and, uh, and the bunny rabbits and the jackal, that made me think of stuff gets in the way of those things. Uh, I couldn't help but share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think you're touching on an important point in terms of the way that we, you know, the, at a deeper level, what, what is ecology, you know, really about why and why, you know, what are the deeper issues? It's because it's not all about fossil fuels and, you know, how we consume. It's, I, I think at a deeper level about where do we find our pleasure satisfaction, you know, before the civil war, industrialization had been confined mostly to the textile industry and a few other industries like clockmaking. But the world we're living in now is, is there's so much consumer goods and so much advertising and, and the, 
the, me- the main message is that I will find my pleasure satisfaction in consuming. And there's a, there's a Jewish mystical idea uh, based on teachings in the Kabbalah that at a, at a deeper level, it's not about our receiving pleasure. Life isn't, you know, that as, as hedonists would think that it's, it's about maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain. At a deeper level, the question is, can we transform our desire to receive pleasure into a desire to give to others? Or even at a deeper level, a desire to give pleasure to God, which a little complicated, but it's this idea that when we receive pleasure, it's not about my own self-gratification. It's actually expressing gratitude and appreciation to the creator who's given us this pleasure. And, and so at a deeper level, it's about moving from being net takers to being net givers, to being more altruistic instead of just thinking about how, what can I do to deliver me another pleasure hit. Yeah. You said earlier about how we have similar views and, and I'm like, this, it sounds a lot like things that I said before myself. The pleasure hit is, yeah, the model, the addiction perspective. I'm not sure if that's what you're alluding to, but it, like, I think we're, we see the withdrawal that we'll feel if we don't do the things that we know give us a certain pleasure in a certain way, but we don't see past the withdrawal to, you know, in, in the clear addiction, living a life of like eating healthy, exercising, making a living, you know, getting hugs and time with people we love. We don't see that that can be actually greater than whatever that is giving us that hit. And yet that happens. But it's, I think, can we get 7.8 billion people to overcome that, to face with withdrawal, support each other through it? Well, it's, you're raising an important question. I, I don't think we need everyone on board to, to make that shift. I think we need a critical mass, Mm-hmm. which is, is much less than 50%, but is more than the current outliers like you and me who are, you know, uh, speaking about these issues. Um, but, you know, of what you just mentioned in terms of a hug, you know, a lot of the pleasures that the consumer society is delivering are superficial pleasures, which which do provide pleasure, whether it's an ice cream or a, you know, a Facebook post of a, a cat that falls off a roof or whatever it might be. But, and this is actually something that Pope Francis talks about in, in his encyclical in Laudato Si of how those are surface pleasures, but they're deeper pleasures like a hug, you know, like, like intimacy between two people, which the other things are just an imitation of. And, and so therefore, part of the, the transition that, that we're trying to cultivate um, to a, a more ecological and, and, and spiritually aware society is one of where we value those pleasures in family, in community, in, in self-introspection, in connection to the, the infinite one, the source of all being. Uh, when we make that transition, then the prospect of uh, you know, ice cream bar or a, you know, cheap movie is going to be a lot less enticing. I would, yeah. And I would even go so far as to say, yeah, someone was over the other day, I was cooking my famous no packaging vegan stew. And she said, well, what would you do if someone brought you some Ben and Jerry's right now? Or what, which is, I used to always, always have some ice cream in my freezer. And I used to always have the Snyder's of Hanover pretzel bits because they come in different flavors. And I, and I, I don't just think of it as, for a while it would be that they weren't appetizing. But now it's that if I ate them, I wouldn't be eating something else. The something else would be, you know, 
I don't know, a salad, broccoli, or my famous no packaging vegan stew. And in that regard, replacing, it feels like replacing time with a loved one with playing a video game. It's disgusting. I mean, maybe other people think that I'm crazy to talk this way, but to replace spending time with my nieces and nephews with playing a video game or it's just scrolling on the screen. And it's just, I say this as someone who just played my share of video games and, and maybe others might say, well, Josh, you had that experience and you've learned from it. Other people have to go through that experience. I'm not sure, but it's really um, the values and the rewards, the depth of them and the, the richness of them and the meaning of them that you can have with stewardship of other people and, and our communities and our relationships, and our families, other things just don't compare. They, and they, to the extent that they detract from them, it's, it's horrible. Maybe I'm going too far on a limb, but I'm surprised at how much the emotions have changed within me and how much more I like this. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's a really important part of the, of the work to be done now of amplifying the, the appeal of, of what you described of connecting to family and community and, and spirituality I would add. And by doing that, you know, and, and this really goes back to what I was saying earlier about going on a walk, that it's a simple pleasure. It costs me no money. Breathe fresh air. I surround myself with living trees and, and birds. I hear birds. I go to a small waterfall in, in the middle of the city. And it's, it's a pleasure which is deeply uh, refreshing and, and reinvigorating for me. And, and that that's, you know, that's part of the transition that um, I think we need to make in these times. And so I just, I just give us a blessing, give, give everyone a blessing to really em- embrace these, these deeper pleasures and um, these deeper forms of connection, because the, the situation we're dealing with boils down to, to reaching those. And then, you know, the, the attraction and the addiction, as you said, to these these more superficial pleasures, I think, will slowly fall away. As Henry David Thoreau said, for every hundred people hacking at the branches of the tree of evil, one person's hacking at their roots. Or as uh, the Rashba, a rabbi writing 700 years ago in Spain said, if you get at the root issues, the peripheral issues will fall away. And so that's, that's why I think we really need to focus on the root issues, which are about moderating consumption, finding inner satisfaction, long-term thinking, and then the peripheral issues, whether they're plastic pollution or fossil fuel use, um, those, will, those will hopefully fall away. I want to close with a couple of, I, I would love to keep talking more, but I want to try to keep it under, under an hour. When you did this, did your family catch on? What was the interaction with other people, whether people you knew who saw it or didn't see you doing it, or people who you didn't know who might have passed you by was there any interaction there? And then the other question is, do you expect to keep doing this in, in, in some way or other? I do expect to keep doing this. I, I will share that I've been inspired by my wife, who's been doing this now for probably a year uh, and has been walking in the park. And, uh, and she's probably the one who <laughs> most inspired me because if, you know, so I'm, I'm grateful for that and for her. And yeah, you know, we, we also try to go with our kids uh, into into the park and you know especially in this time of pandemic when you know there's a tendency to spend a lot of time at home I mean I, I don't go to my office now I haven't been to my office in a month because of the the closure here and 
And so therefore I don't get out as much, but so it's important to, to get out at least once a day and into nature. And, and we're trying to take our kids with us as well. This is heartwarming. I'm going to tell people there's a rabbi in Jerusalem and I got him and his wife a little bit closer. Yeah. <laughs> not, not I got, but you know, I, I, part of the, what are the, one of the outcomes. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say. May God bless you. <laughs> and, and let me leave you with an open invitation. As this keeps going, if, if new developments occur or you reflect on it and you want to share more, please let me know. And I'd love to have you on more to either to hear that or just to continue our conversation. Wonderful. I'd be happy to. And uh, I really appreciate the podcast that you make. Any, anything to close on to say directly to the listeners or anything you want to say or close with? I would just say thank you for, for listening and uh, I wish you a great time. Whatever nature you're able to access, may you enjoy it and uh, enjoy the fresh air and the, the sight of green. Rabbi Yonatan Nereel, thank you very much. As I said before the start of the episode, I would have expected many people to shy away from some of the topics we covered, including maybe even especially myself. So I greatly value his openness and thoughtfulness. This conversation, along with ones with religious guests like Bob Inglis and Brent Suter, as well as unrecorded ones I've had with friends, family, they make me evaluate the approach of many environmentalists, including myself often, I have to say, when their message comes from a place of, I'm right, you're wrong, let me explain how. What works in influencing others? What works in leadership? I'm sure I've mentioned the root of the word convince, vince as in vanquish. When was the last time someone vanquished you and you responded, you beat me, now I agree with you, now I'll do what you suggested? I find it more and more interesting to learn from people I disagree with, more fun, more engaging, and I learn more too. I don't want to imply that I'm a paragon of humility or even remotely like that ideal, but I've come a long way and I'm glad for the distance that I've traversed in this area. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.